Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 16th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that there is no requirement to pay temporary disability indemnity for medical appointments after an injured worker returns to work. Here's what happened in the published case of Skelton versus the California Department of Motor Vehicles. Renee Skelton injured her ankle in 2012 and her shoulder in 2014 while working for the department. She continued working after each injury and only missed work to attend appointments with her treating physicians and to attend two visits with the PQME. Skelton's work hours were not flexible and she could not visit her doctors on weekends. She initially used her sick and vacation leave, but eventually her paycheck was reduced for missed time at work. Her ankle injury was not yet permanent and stationary at the time of her hearing on payment for these medical appointments. The parties disputed whether Skelton was entitled to temporary disability indemnity for wage loss for time missed at work to attend these medical appointments. The state fund contended that Skelton was not entitled to TDI to compensate her for taking time off her work for the medical treatment, but it acknowledged that she was entitled to compensation for wage loss for attending medical legal evaluations. Her attorney contended that the employee is entitled to TDI unless the employee is returned to work and the employee's injury was permanent and stationary. In this case, one of her injuries was not permanent and stationary. The work comp judge concluded that Skelton was not entitled to TDI to attend any of her medical treatment. A WCAB majority in a split panel decision on reconsideration agreed that she was not entitled to TDI for wage loss to attend medical treatment following her return to work. And the Court of Appeal affirmed and concluded that Skelton was not entitled to temporary disability indemnity after she returned to work full-time in the published case. Neither Skelton's time off from work nor her wage loss was due to an incapacity to work. These circumstances were due to scheduling issues and her employee's leave policy. Because Skelton's injuries did not render her incapable of working during the time she took off from work and suffered wage loss, Skelton was not entitled to temporary disability indemnity. And the WCAB in a significant panel decision ruled that Saturday is not a working day for computing the UR time limits. Here's what happened in the case of Puni Pau versus the Department of Forestry. Puni Pau suffered an admitted injury while working for the department. His PTP requested authorization for radio frequency ablation which is a type of medical treatment for an accepted injury to his back. The RFA was received by EK Health on March 12, which was a Monday. EK Health denied the request for treatment on March 19, the following Monday. Applicant made a second request for the same treatment, which was received on April 16, also a Monday, and denied on April 23, 
the following Monday. The applicant then filed a DOR alleging that both UR denials were late and therefore that the WCAB had jurisdiction to award him the medical care. The worker claimed the employer failed to render a UR decision within five working days as required by Labor Code 4610. The work comp judge concluded that the UR denials were timely because Saturdays and Sundays are not working days under the meaning of Labor Code Section 4610. Applicant contended on reconsideration that the UR denials were untimely because Saturday is a working day for purposes of the labor code. But the WCAB affirmed the conclusion of the work comp judge in the significant panel decision of Puni Pau versus Department of Forestry. Although Saturday is a business day under the Civil Code Section 9, it is not a working day under Labor Code Section 4610. The phrase working day found in Labor Code Section 4610 does not include Saturdays based upon its standard modern usage of the language. Even if Saturday were a working day, the UR decisions in this case would still be timely based upon Code of Civil Procedure Section 12A, which extends the deadline for performance of acts that fall due on a Saturday. The Court of Appeal published a decision in the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation v. WCAB Fitzpatrick pertained to an injury before SB 863 in 2013. That prior case rejected a 100% disability award that did not first rate a case using the AMA guides and then follow the steps outlined in the 2005 rating schedule. And then, and only then, consider a rationale why some other scheme should be used to rate the case instead. The Court of Appeal concluded that Section 4660 addressed how the determination on the facts shall be made in each case for injuries occurring before January 1, 2013. Indeed, Section 4660 expressly applies to the determination of the percentages of permanent disability. A final permanent disability rating is obtained by going through the steps outlined in the 2005 schedule. The logic of this published Fitzpatrick case was seen to equally apply to injuries after 2013 on the theory that the scheme for rating permanent disabilities is prima facie evidence to be rebutted only by more compelling evidence that it is inappropriate. However, recent panel decisions show a willingness of the WCAB to award total disability based solely on a vocational rehabilitation report without going through the rating steps and without any discussion of why the AMA guide's rating would be inappropriate. Here's a recent example. Rafael Sandoval suffered an admitted industrial injury to his cervical spine and lumbar spine in 2015 while employed as an iron worker by the Conco companies. 
The AME in orthopedics described his injury as severe spinal stenosis and disc herniation in the cervical spine and lumbar disc disease with radiolocopathy, radiating symptoms. He required four-level laminoplasty from C3 to C7 with hardware implantation as well as a subsequent cervical discectomy. Applicant's vocational expert evaluated him in 2016 and concluded that he was not capable of returning to the labor market due to his physical limitations. So the work comp judge found that applicant sustained 100% permanent disability and the WCAB affirmed the findings after reconsideration. Neither the report and recommendation on petitioner for reconsideration by the WCAJ nor the opinion and order granting reconsideration report what the rating using the AMA guides and the 2005 rating schedule would have been, nor why it should be rejected in favor of the vocational rehabilitation expert. The decision went directly to the simple metrics of a vocational evaluation seemingly unfettered by the logic of the Fitzpatrick decision by the Court of Appeal. There's no way of knowing what steps are required, if any, to ignore the AMA guides, the rating schedule, and case law in favor of another scheme for awarding total disability. Oxycontin maker Purdue Pharma has reached a tentative multi-billion dollar agreement with some plaintiffs aimed at settling thousands of lawsuits over its alleged role in the opioid crisis. Lawyers representing more than 2,000 cities, counties, and other plaintiffs suing Purdue, along with 23 states and three territories, were on board with the offer valued at up to $12 billion. More than a dozen other states remain opposed or uncommitted to the deal. New York, Massachusetts, and Connecticut are among states opposed to the current offer. The owners of Purdue Pharma, the Sacklers, refused to budge after attorneys general in North Carolina, Tennessee, presented them with counterproposals. They said they had widespread support from other states for the settlement as it is. This dispute sets the stage for a legal battle over Purdue's efforts to contain the litigation now in a bankruptcy court. Purdue will ask a bankruptcy judge to halt litigation while settlement discussions continue, a move some states say they are likely to challenge. A bankruptcy judge could force holdouts to accept a settlement as part of Purdue's reorganization plan if enough other plaintiffs agree. In a related development, a federal judge approved the substance of a proposal by lawyers representing cities and counties that would bring every state and municipality in the country into their settlement talks. According to the federal judge who oversees the cases, the plan which was opposed by 37 states and the District of Columbia does not interfere with the states settling their own cases any way they want. The judge wrote that this process simply provides an option and, in the court's opinion, it is a powerful, creative, and helpful one. 
Their proposal calls for creating a class of up to 3,000 counties and 30,000 cities, towns, and villages that could vote on whether to accept any settlement with the plaintiffs reach with the defendants. And now our crime report. Louise Enrique Perez owned and operated several temporary employee staffing companies. He lost his workers' compensation insurance in 2013, but continued to operate his businesses. Soon, Orange County prosecutors charged him and two other defendants with defrauding a workers' compensation insurance company by misrepresenting the uninsured insured workers' employees of a different company. The defendants were accused of conspiring to fraudulently report 47 injured employees to American International Group to avoid liability for its employees who were injured at work. As a result, AIG became liable for nearly $400,000 worth of expenses for claims of individuals not covered by their insurance policy. And Perez has now been named in a federal grand jury indictment that charges him with tax evasion for failing to pay the Internal Revenue Service nearly $30 million. Perez, who has maintained residences in NI Mills, Yorba Linda, and Dove Canyon, is charged with one felony count of tax evasion. His companies, which include Checkmates Staffing, Staff Aid Incorporated, Borrow A- Baron HR, and Fortress Holding Group were required to withhold taxes from employee wages and to pay the withheld amounts to the IRS. These withheld taxes, sometimes known as trust fund taxes, include income taxes and Federal Insurance Contributions Act, FICA, taxes that fund Social Security and Medicare. The indictment alleges that his companies failed to pay the IRS the payroll taxes, including trust fund taxes that Perez companies withheld from the employees' paychecks. The IRS attempted to collect his outstanding tax liability, but the indictment alleged that Perez attempted to thwart the IRS's collection efforts by purchasing luxury items and concealing his ownership by placing the titles of these items in the names of his businesses and other individuals. Those luxury items included a 2005 Ferrari 360 Spider F, a 2007 Rolls-Royce Phantom, a Duffy D-22 Bay Island Boat, a 2011 Mercedes-Benz SLS, a 2015 Mercedes-Benz G-Class, and a 2014 Lamborghini Aventador. And in regulatory news, a new law that codifies the ABC employment test has been passed by the California legislature. AB5 that would ensure gig economy workers in companies like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash are entitled to minimum wage, workers' compensation, and other benefits. The contentious bill was passed in a 29-11 vote as the legislative session was about to end for the year. AB5 had passed the State Assembly on May 29 with a 53-11 vote. 
It is expected to be signed by California Governor Gavin Newsom and will go into effect starting January 1, 2020. The business models of these companies are already under severe financial strain. Although the extent to which AB5 could impact these platforms is unknown, it is expected to drive their labor costs up by about 30%. Last month, Uber reported a record second quarter loss of $5.2 billion, its largest ever quarterly loss. In an attempt to cut costs, the company just laid off 435 employees across its engineering and product teams on top of the 400 marketing team employees who were handed pink slips in late July. Litigation is now likely to follow passage of the new law. Uber said that it was confident that its drivers will retain their independent status when the measure goes into effect on January 1. It claims several previous rulings have found that the driver's work is outside the usual course of Uber's businesses, which is serving as a technology platform for several different types of digital marketplaces. And its chief legal officer added that the company was no stranger to legal battles. California has at least one million workers who work as contractors and are likely to be affected by the measure, including nail salon workers, janitors, and construction workers. In California, religious groups said they feared that small churches and synagogues would not be able to afford making pastors and rabbis employees. Winemakers and franchise owners said they were worried they could be ensnared by the new law. Historically, if workers thought they had been misclassified as a contractor, it was up to them to fight the classification in court. But the new bill allows cities to sue companies that do not comply. And California may be only the beginning as lawmakers elsewhere, including New York, move to embrace these new policies. Legislators in Oregon and Washington state said they believe that California's approval gave new momentum to similar bills that they had drafted. American film studios collectively generate several hundred films every year, making the United States one of the most prolific producers of films in the world. Most shooting now takes place in California, New York, Louisiana, Georgia, and North Carolina. Last year, California was the shooting location for 10 of the top 100 box office performance, trailing Canada, the UK, and Georgia. Canada was by far the top-ranked location with 20 films, including that 11 were shot in British Columbia. The UK and Georgia followed with 15 movies each. Canada pioneered the use of production tax credits during the 1990s, and California, to compete, ramped up its tax credit program in 2015 by expanding its annual allocation of credits from $100 million to $330 million, and establishing a selection system that gave priority to the jobs created by the films. The California tax credit total as high as 25% of production costs, which is still short 
of the incentives elsewhere. California Governor Jerry Brown signed legislation that extended the program for five years until 2025. Still, California's yearly allocation for tax credits is dwarfed by the UK with its $822 million invested in 2017, the largest film incentive program worldwide. Georgia had $800 million invested last year. At this point, it seems that California has given up trying to stop the exodus of California filmmaking. Instead, a new law just passed in California that requires costs of benefits for social systems of film workers who are temporarily working out of the state to shift to California employers. California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a bill to ensure film and TV workers operating out of state for their jobs will have full access to the state's unemployment insurance, disability insurance, and paid family leave. He signed the measure, SB 271, and it will become law this January. The legislation is aimed at addressing uncertainties for California-based film and TV production workers, who often must travel outside of California. The bill would provide for purposes of determining employment of a motion picture production worker when the service is not localized in the state, but some of the services performed in the state, that the worker's entire service qualifies employment if their residence is in the state. The California International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees Council and Entertainment Union Coalition co-sponsored the bill. The council represents over 50,000 members of the entertainment industry while the coalition has roughly 150,000 members and comprises 17 local unions, including SAG-AFTRA. The flip side of this new law is that New York, Louisiana, Georgia, and North Carolina will keep the film production revenue and be protected from the costs of social benefits from workers temporarily earning a good living in their states. Excuse me. This year, the California legislature again introduced legislation poised to limit apportionment in several ways with SB 731. Their proposed law adds a sentence to Labor Code 4663C, the approximate percentage of permanent disability caused by other factors under the new provision shall not include consideration of race, religious creed, color, national origin, age, gender, marital status, sex, sexual identity, sexual orientation, or genetic characteristics. The proposed law was likely a response to a few recent decisions that have enhanced the ability of employers to obtain apportionment of permanent disability. However, the court's successes may be short-lived as a new proposed law is rapidly gaining momentum in the California legislature to limit or water down the apportionment law adopted in 2004. In April 2017, the Court of Appeal published its decision in the city of Jackson versus WCAB Rice, which confirmed apportionment to genetic factors. 
Christopher Rice was a police officer who suffered a spine injury. A PQME found that genetic factors were significant in his permanent impairment. The Court of Appeal reversed the WCAB, which refused to allow apportionment to genetics. And in December 2018, the Court of Appeal published its decision in the city of Petaluma versus the WCAB and Aaron Lind. In that case, a PQME concluded that 85% of his disability was due to a previously asymptomatic underlying condition. The work comp judge rejected apportionment and reconsideration was denied by the WCAB. However, the Court of Appeal reversed also in that case and granted apportionment, finding that the requirement that the asymptomatic pre-existing condition will in it in and of itself naturally progressed to disable the claimant was the law prior to 2004 and is no longer a requirement for apportionment to an underlying condition. In an apparent response to these decisions, SB 731 was passed by the California Senate on May 19 and sent to the State Assembly as of May 22. On May 30, the bill was sent to the Insurance Committee and as of the end of the legislative session this year, has not had a finding by that committee. Thus, a SB 731 will not be passed this year. Similar bills were passed by the legislature and then vetoed by Governors Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jerry Brown for many years. It is likely that SB 731 will be passed by the legislature this next legislative session. It is not clear what response Governor Gavin Newsom will have if it is passed. However, the effective date would be no earlier than January 1, 2021, if passed and signed next year as a non-urgency law. Employers who have cases in litigation involving apportionment issues would have more than one year to bring those cases to a conclusion. And in other news, the executive director of risk management at Panda Restaurant Group said that historically the workers' compensation industry has been really slow to adapt to technology and innovation. He was the moderator of a Q&A panel with innovative risk management experts during the annual CWC and Risk Conference in Dana Point. The innovative risk management panel included the claims and operations manager at the California Self-Insured Security Fund, the director of risk management with Southern Glazers and Wine and Spirits, and the senior risk manager with International Coffee and Tea. One panelist said large insurers and third-party providers have been reluctant to spend money on innovation and have been relying too much instead on vendors to bring new technology and innovation. The panel covered some of the pros and cons of using telemedicine to treat injured workers. And while several people want to continue with doctor's visits, many workers have embraced telemedicine with convenience the key argument. One company that started a telemedicine program in January to treat certain injuries with telemedicine found that nearly half of the 45 employees who were eligible for the program were fine with it. Workplace safety was another big topic at the conference. OSHA updates 
What's Next on the Horizon was the title of a panel with the Vice President of Safety and Corporate Affairs for Grimway and the Division Manager for Bridgestone. The pair covered new indoor heat regulations for California. The regulations kick in when temperatures reach 82 degrees Fahrenheit, and they address certain clothing that may cause a worker to overheat. In cases where workers are required to wear clothing that could make them too hot, the regulations could kick in at temperatures below 82 degrees. So companies will have to be mindful even at lower temperatures. Wildfire smoke emergency regulations adopted in July were another topic of discussion, as were new rules for valley fever. Valley fever comes from fungus that grows in the dirt in some areas of the southwestern U.S., including California, and can cause flu-like symptoms, including fever, cough, chills, and chest pain. The rules required companies to take numerous preventative measures to protect workers in areas considered to be endemic, including Madeira, Fresno, Tulare, Kern, King, Monterey, and San Luis Obispo counties. New workplace violence regulations were another topic the two addressed. Employer requirements include employee training, creating an emergency action plan, conducting mock training exercises with local law enforcement, and adopting a zero-tolerance policy toward workplace violence. Both Politico and now the Los Angeles Times report concerns about California's state insurance commissioner who has stuck taxpayers with thousands of dollars in bills to cover the cost of renting his apartment in Sacramento while he maintains his prior residence in Los Angeles, a break from other statewide elected officials that is alarming ethics watchdogs. And Mr. Lara's decision to file for rental reimbursement breaks precedent with two previous insurance commissioners. Republican Steve Poisner, who is from the Bay Area, did not charge living expenses to the state during his tenure as insurance commissioner. Neither did Democrat Dave Jones, though he did not have to commute as far as Sacramento resident. Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, whose main residence was in Southern California, lived at the Hyatt Regency while in Sacramento, but had his expenses paid by an outside foundation. Governor Gavin Newsom, a former San Francisco mayor, recently moved from the Bay Area to a Sacramento suburb with his family at his own expense. The revelation could add another headache for Commissioner Ricardo Lara, who is already under scrutiny for his campaign fundraising and perceived coziness with the insurance industry. The Sacramento Bee claims that California's top regulator of insurance companies sought campaign contributions from the industry and partied with one of its lobbyists after winning his election last year. This is according to records and social media posts obtained by the Sacramento Bee. Three months after taking office, Insurance Commissioner Lara scheduled a lunch with insurance company executives with a pending matter before his department. A memo to the commissioner said the meeting had a specific purpose, 
relationship building for his re-election campaign. Laura had pledged not to take money from the insurance industry as he ran for the post last year. Weeks following the lunch, he broke his promise. In April, he accepted more than $50,000 in campaign donations from insurance representatives and other spouses. Some of the money came from out-of-state donors who have ties to one of the companies scheduled to be represented at the lunch. Social media posts show Lara also counts reinsurance lobbyists among his friends. He partied with a farmer's insurance lobbyist in London on New Year's Eve just a week before his inauguration. And the San Francisco Chronicle characterizes his apology about the contribution ethical problems and blame shifting on his staff as underwhelming. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkCop Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Please search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian, Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. <laughs>